Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. I hate to say it, but the new year is off to a gloomy start. 2024 began with wars underway in Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, and just this week the conflict in the Middle East escalated when the United States and five other countries carried out airstrikes on Houthi rebels in Yemen to put an end to their attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Every January, FP publishes a long essay titled 10 Conflicts to Watch. This is not because we like predicting conflicts, but preparing for them is the best way to know how to deal with them. The authors of this annual essay are the two top executives at the International Crisis Group, an independent body that sounds the alarm to prevent deadly conflict. Crisis Group is known to speak to all sides in conflicts and offer advice on how to prevent and resolve war. I urge you to read the essay, it's linked in the show notes, and you will see that Gaza, a wider Middle East war, and Ukraine all get attention, as they always do in the media. But you will also read about conflicts that have very few people watching in the West. Sudan, Ethiopia, the Sahel, Haiti, Armenia and Azerbaijan, Myanmar, and more. More broadly, the crisis group argues that constraints on the use of force seem to be crumbling almost everywhere. And it's a troubling trend. And it begs the question, are we at an unusually conflict-heavy period? Is the world unusually bad at dealing with conflict? My guest this week is Comfort Hero. She's one of the authors of the essay and has spent her entire career working on or in conflict-affected countries. She is president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. As always, if you like the podcast, rate us or share it with a friend. You can also watch us live on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions too. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. All right, let's dive in. Comfort, welcome to FP Live. Thank you for inviting me, Ravi. It's a real pleasure. And to be doing this consistently for the last over 10 years now with you um, to publish this essays every year. It's really, it's our privilege. Thank you for doing the work that you do. So I thought I'd start with the big picture. Um, and you've been doing this for a while. Are we in a period of more conflict than usual right now? Or does it just feel that way? I think it's both of them, um, Ravi. I think what is um, quite telling about this period is that it's really spread across the world. So in every region that Crisis Group works in, for example, we are dealing with a, a live conflict um, or criminal gang um, um, issues like Haiti, which we mentioned for Latin America. You've, we've got three that we put on the 10 conflicts for, for Africa. We, put, put, we could have put a lot more in Asia as well and in Europe and um, Central Asia. So it, it statistically, it feels worse as well. And there's a sense in which um, war is on the rise. And I think it is complicated by what you hinted at, which is that the systems and the lack of leadership and what we highlight in our um, essay around a sense of a crisis of peacemaking. Um, the institutions themselves are fragile and the sense in which um, there's a drift in which to handle all the various crises. And I think, you know, when you look at it from the end of the post-Cold War period, 
And particularly if you zoom in, as we did in the essay, Ravi, around 2012, the rise of the, the Arab Spring, there's a sense in which the trend line um, has gotten worse, you know, especially since Libya and Syria. Um, things look brittle, things look harder, and the system seems um, unable to deal with the bandwidth, um, the capacity issues as well. And how much of this, um, just to riff on what you're saying, Comfort, is because of the sheer number and scope and scale of the conflicts we're seeing? And how much of it do you think is, you know, the fact that we have increased great power competition? We have, in a sense, the relative decline of the United States and and the relative decline in its influence uh, around the world. And then you have organizations uh, like the United Nations, uh, like the IMF, the World Bank, that also feel embattled in this moment. I'm guessing the answer is a bit of all of this, but you know, what is your sense of you know, why we seem to be uh, in a period of, of more conflict right now? It's all the above, as <laughs> you hinted to um, yourself, um, Ravi. I mean, I wouldn't privilege one over the other. Um, it's not sort of clear what also, what, what are the driving forces, but a few impressions at least, and, and that's how we try to define the, the essays when you're trying to sort of connect and, and figure out why things appear to be falling apart, and that's the headline of the essay. It's a sense in which this is colliding with major power competition. It's colliding with a loss of faith in key institutions coming off the back of um, the lack of collaboration, for example, over um, COVID-19, the way in which um, a number of countries were left to fend for themselves um, in responding to vaccine and the vaccine distribution, coming at a time where leaders themselves um, were creating different alliances, no longer believing in the values um, that bind the international um, community. A lot of that revealed, exposed um, in, in relation to the fallout from Ukraine, what is interesting at the same time, Ravi, is that you've seen um, a sense in which, yes, there's a there's a multiplicity of actors. Um, there's a multipolar world, a sense in, we're, in which we're leave, living in. There's no sense of what the, the new world order in which we're moving into. That's not, not clear. And you've seen this emergence um, or rising powers, um, middle powers, as they're often called, who themselves are looking at the international landscape, recognizing that some of the major powers themselves, particularly the United um, States itself, is unpredictable, um, not necessarily reliable in the same way, um, has probably lost some of its edge. It's in competition itself with China, um, doesn't necessarily have the bandwidth, and is not necessarily seen as the first port of call, although in two of the major conflicts that we're seeing today, whether it's Ukraine, or Gaza, the US clearly has a role and has been shaping much of that for good or, or, or for bad reasons. But it's all colliding at the same time, Ravi. I think that's what's worrying. And there's a sense in which this is a year of, of living um, dangerously, a year of waiting dangerously um, for when the next um, big crisis is going to emerge. And rather than trying to prevent it, we all sort of wait in catching our breaths and waiting to see what's going to happen around the corner without acting early to avert those crises. Mm. You know, Comfort, I should also add that amid this year of living dangerously, as you put it, we also have a year of elections, which adds another layer of flux with changing leadership, with politicians deploying populism, nationalism, 
other forces to try and play on people's fears about conflicts around the world. But one of the themes in your report is about how leaders of certain countries are taking matters into their own hands more than usual, using military might before diplomatic means and disregarding international norms and laws. And some of that plays into what you're describing of how various leaders look around the world and they feel that they have less trust in the system. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, when I sort of look at the the examples that we, we give to you, I think a classic um, case of that, um, Ravi, is um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. I mean, I was just there last month and just saw just how brittle and how much of a knife edge that country was on in the week in which world leaders, Ravi, were meeting at the General Assembly. It's in that week that Azerbaijan, in a sense, finished the job off of reclaiming Nagorno-Karabakh. There was no, nobody countered that activity. There was no, the, the, the Security Council itself was silent. And, you know, when you look at it from Baku's perspective, they see that the one um, restraining power, Russia itself, is embattled. It's caught up in Ukraine. It senses that it, nobody's going to pull it up. In sense, it feels emboldened. And then you look at somewhere else like um, Ethiopia. And what emerged out of Tigray, for example, was a, a sense of a victor's peace where Prime Minister Abiy felt emboldened, um, felt that he had secured um, victory and you know bring in a sense of um, a, a more militarized approach um, to handling that situation. And as we speak, um, Ravi, we've got the same situation in Sudan. No one power able to roll back either the rapid support um, force or the Sudanese um, armed forces. Both of them see it as an ex existential um, crisis. They see no restraint. They see nobody, none of the mediators, none of the usual um, actors who have often played a, a heavy role in this um, particular crisis. Have, there's a sense in none of them have any leverage um, to do this. And this is in the back of Ukraine. And they all saw what happened um, in Ukraine. And everybody's looking at the landscape and realizing that um, there's, there's not one power strong enough to restrain us, um, to pull us back. And there's a sense in which it's transactional, military might um, above diplomacy, above the hard work of negotiations and dialogue to get us to political talks. That is the context in which we're talking. Um, and that is a context in which we see a rise of war and a rise of militarism to solve conflicts as well. Mm -hmm. Comfort, you mentioned a few conflicts there, and I want to try and go a little bit deeper on one of them. And that's Sudan. Uh, for starters, for people who aren't as familiar with the conflict there, sketch it out a bit. What's going on? Well, I mean, we've seen nine months um, of war um, in the country, but it didn't just start nine months ago. I mean, a lot of us were, were involved back in 2019 at the time of heightened expectations, a revolutionary fervor after the demise of, of the ousting of the long-term um, leader there, Omar al-Bashir. And he had been in power for over 30, over 30 years, and suddenly there was a popular um, uprising, a lot of hope a lot of expectation that we were going to see a turn of the page, um, a real transformation after um, years of kleptocracy, after years of predation of, and corruption, and also after um, the sector of genocide that was taking place. You'll remember the whole um, effort around, say, um, um, Darfur. And it's a tragedy that is sort of in the last 20 years, much of that, the violence, um, the sense of sort of collapse 
um, many people displaced, thousands of people um, dying, many children out of school, all those things that we'd fought for for the last 20 years, try to get resolution, try to piece the country back together again, all sort of coming back now in the midst of a contest between military factions, the army and the paramilitary um, rapid um, support force, you know, fighting for the heart and soul um, of Khartoum um, today. The reasons, Ravi, why these two um, factions are fighting are still very much alive today, which is about you know, the security sector, which is about power, which is about control, which is about access to money. None of those facts have changed. And whoever whoever wins stands um, to preside over a lot of resources. Whoever loses, um, the outcome, the fate of that person um, becomes quite dangerous. Um, so we're talking about a period of genocide. We're talking about killing of a period of killing. Um, a sense in which also... Ravi, the, the region itself is implicated in that story because there are different sides. Um, people have sort of backed different horses um, in, this, in this rebellion. And I think one of the challenges in re resolving Sudan today is because outside actors themselves have a different notion and different understanding of the Sudan that they want and the stability that they want to see um, in Sudan. And, and it, this is allowed... Uh, a mushrooming of the, of the conflict as we as we speak, and just to linger uh, on that for a moment, so the UAE might be supplying uh, the RSF with weapons. Meanwhile, the army is backed by Egypt, and then amid all of this, the United States removed its staff from the region. So the Sudanese must be or, or might be feeling somewhat abandoned by America. How does all of this play out then? And is it your sense then that? America hasn't done enough? Should it be playing a bigger role? Can it? The key players that were always always pivotal or crucial to helping to nudge um, a crisis in the right direction um, are, are missing um, from the table. And the United States is a perfect example in, 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 in Sudan. Often historically, um, it had had, it often had a strong envoy um, playing a significant role doing a lot of shuttle diplomacy, doing heavy lifting um, in the region, working in concert um, with the region, trying to cajole, pull all the forces together. That is missing. But there are other actors, um, Ravi, who are also relevant to the Sudan story. So it's the, the Africa Union. Um, it's a neighboring, immediate neighboring countries. You've mentioned two of them yourself, the enablers, but it's also Kenya. Um, it's also Ethiopia. They're also competing, Ravi, in this context. Um, they're also at um, at loggerhead in terms of the direction in which um, Sudan should should take place. At the start of this new round of crisis, Ravi, we had an emergency diplomacy taking place in Jeddah, in which um, um, Saudi Arabia and Washington um, were involved. But they're parted company. Neither side necessarily happy um, with what is hap with, with happening. Also, the fact that the that other key actors were not engaged in the process, were left out of the process, complicated the ability um, to make sure that that effort stuck. Um, we managed to get some bargains, um, humanitarian um, um, pause and things like that, but none of that is sticking. And right now, fast forward, Ravi, we had an important initiative taking place before the end of la um, last year in Djibouti, led by the regional actors, both sides made a commitment um, towards an unconditional um, cessation of hostilities. Both sides said that they would talk, but getting them to talk, 
getting various actors to get them to talk is the dilemma, is the problem that we have right now today as, we, as we're speaking. Mm -hmm. So let's hop around the region a bit more. Uh, Ethiopia. Things were looking a bit more hopeful at the start of 2023. Not anymore. What's going on? And also, you know, Ravi, we say things were looking better at 2023. In a sense, because we were all focused on Tigray, um, we were not paying attention um, or, or because everybody was absorbed by, by Tigray, um, much of the other um, crises that were facing um, Ethiopia weren't receiving the same amount of attention as well. So even before Tigray, we knew that Abiy was spending a lot of time trying to sort of put a lid on a number of crises. One of the consequences and one of the things that fell out of the, the, the Tigray um, conflict was that was the relationship between himself and the Amhara region. Um, the militias from the Amhara region, you'll remember, um, Ravi, were fighting um, with the federal forces um, to put down the Tigray rebellion. As a result of the peace agreement between the Tigrayans and the Ethiopians, there's a sense in which the Amharas felt left out. There's a, self, there's a sense in which they felt um, hemmed in as a result of the deal that Abiy struck with the Tigrayans. Um, they feel as though that Abiy has turned against them, not dealing with their own territorial disputes that they have with the Tigrayans, and feeling as though he's made too much compromises that has left them in a vun very vulnerable position. There's another contest that is taking place also with, with Abiy's own um, people, the Amoros. Um, again, a sense in which... Um, the contest for Ethiopia is about its direction, it's about its leadership, it's about who sits at the helm of that, it's about making sure also that I, as an Amhara people, that my, my people also get a seat at the table versus um, the, Amhara pe the Amhara people who also want a seat at the table. So you've got this contest for power, this contest to, to grab the centre of leadership, and these long disputes some of them are territorial, some of them are about power, and some of them is about the future fate um, of the country. And they're all colliding at the same time. And the very first piece of the big jigsaw was to deal with the, with the Tigrayans, which was the former ruling party. But now they, we have to deal with the rest of the country. And it's a humanitarian crisis in the midst, Ravi, of also an economic crisis that is taking place um, in the country. And just one more point on that, um, Ravi, you know, you'll remember um, a number of us characterized what was happening with the Tigrayans as an internationalized civil war. And that's because the neighborhood, the neighbors of Ethiopia also had um, a fate in Ethiopia. And one of the most crucial ones was Eritrea, who felt that for them, the future of their own country, the future of their own survival was very much contingent on trying to reorder Ethiopia. And so we now have this standoff also between Ethiopia and Eritrea that's, that feeds back into much of the dynamics playing out in Ethiopia as well. Since we're focused on Africa for now, um, the African Union, um, what role could it have played, should it have played in mediating or facilitating either a resolution uh, in both Sudan and Ethiopia. We can also talk about the Sahel, um, but have they failed? Could they be doing more? I wouldn't necessarily say they've failed, but there's a sense of disappointment um, because, you know, the African Union is probably the most vital multilateral body 
uh, particularly for the United Nations outside of the United Nations. Even the European Union sees the African Union as, an, as a vital partner in doing um, peacekeeping, peace and security um, on the continent. It has demanded respect. Um, in a sense, it's earned some of that respect. But there's a sense also in which the African Union often lacks the, the bandwidth, the capacity, or the political direction um, to provide leadership on this crisis. It is a guarantor. It was a guarantor to the 2019 political agreement in Sudan. Specifically on Sudan, it also came up with what I thought, what, what crisis group thought, was a very innovative idea, a sort of international contact group, um, but, but what the African Union called a core group, um, to bring key actors around to, to help shape and nudge the political actors in Sudan and civil society to begin to define what a political framework could look like um, for, for Sudan going forward. The question is, why wasn't the African Union able to drive that through? What was what hindered it? Is it political will? Is it political direction? Um, do the member states themselves not see or agree um, with the proposals that was put forward by the African Union? In the Sahel, unfortunately, it's not clear what role the African Union ought to play. Um, it's often times sat at the back seat. It's never been at the driver's seat in the sense in the way it was in Sudan, and has often um, struggled to assert a clear role um, for itself in the in the in the Sahel. And oftentimes, and in fact, neither has the regional body, the, the more immediate regional body. Um, the West Africa body, uh, neither has it been able to assert its own position. So I think this is a this is a cr crucial time um, for the African Union, especially as it demands that it takes more leadership um, and not just be beholden to the United Nations or others um, directing um, peace and security. And I think there are a number of us, a number of people who are concerned and asking for the African Union. And, the, and its member states to, to really be at the center of the gravity and to drive through on a number of these issues that are, that are plaguing the continent. So I have to ask you this question as a journalist, whether it's Sudan, whether it's Ethiopia, the Sahel, it's fair to say that the Western media um, hasn't really given these conflicts anywhere near as much attention as it has, say, the war in Ukraine or what's going on in the Middle East. Um, and, you know, they can bear some criticism for that. But were the media to cover it more, uh, to cover these conflicts more, what do you think that would do? I mean, would it have, what kind of impact would it have? And I say this, you know, if you look at the Middle East where the Western media is covering it extensively, um, but America's role and the West's role in that conflict um, is mixed. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have... Uh, an impact that the rest of the world, for example, is quite happy with. You know, there was a time, and I mentioned it at the beginning um, of our conversation, um, Ravi, for example, on Sudan, where we had this groundswell social movement that that swept America in the name of called Save Darfur. <laughs> so there was a there was a time where the the media was absorbed. You'll remember you know, way back, you know, 20 years ago, um, in the name of, of conflict diamonds, there was a lot of focus because this was a, of a central, the way and the, the narrative around a conflict also shapes the, the degree of attention, international um, attention. And so it was very, 
in a sense, if you want to capture the hearts and minds of people, you frame it in a way that it hits them personally. You frame it in a way where it hits the public and domestic um, constituency of that particular country. So, you know, conflict diamonds, that meant that there was a lot of attention, particularly um, in, in the United Kingdom and the, and the United States, to get um, sort of some kind of intervention force there. The same with, with Sudan. Um, a lot of focus because of the, of the specter of, of genocide, but also because of, you know, th there was also a religious um, tone and a rel religious element to that. It's true that oftentimes um, we are driven by what the media um, says as well. It's true also um, that there's sort of an oftentimes that the bandwidth um, is short, um, but I don't think that allows us to get away with the shared responsibility um, that bodies like the Security Council, um, who are supposed to be vested with a mandate to deal with international peace and security, it doesn't exonerate them from their from their responsibility. Neither does that do that for the European Union or the Afri or the Africa Union. If you're driven just by by what the media um, says, then then we really are in trouble. And in fact, the FP, you did it yourself. You said, look, these are eight other. Um, simmering conflicts that we needed to, to keep an eye on as well. But we have to ask ourselves about the role of leaders um, and about foreign policy. Uh, but we are also talking at a time where the domestic, um, the domestic politics itself, at home, popularism, putting up the walls, nationalism, you know, you know, not wanting to do with the international, a more isolationist instinct, America first, my country first, less about the other countries, migration, this is the context, and then it becomes very hard to be able to deal with all these conflicts, because the sense is, why should I care when it doesn't immediately affect my own um, needs when I'm dealing with a cost of living crisis. And it's in that midst that we're also having a challenge to bring these conflicts right up to the agenda of the relevant um, actors and relevant institutions um, as, as we go forward. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. 
I like that we've spent a fair bit of time talking about conflicts so far that get less attention. Um, but let's turn for a few minutes to the conflicts that are getting a lot more attention. And I'll start with the Middle East, um, especially given the news this week. How concerned are you that um, we could be looking at a broader, wider conflict in the Middle East? Very concerned. Um, you know, the three main actors in this um, have all said that they don't want to see sort of a, a, an escalation, a regional war, um, neither the United States, Israel or Iran. But I think we're, you know, there's a sense in which we're, 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 we're there. And you, you, you began the conversation talking about the retaliatory attacks um, by um, the US and the UK and other allies um, yes, yesterday. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of the, the dangers again, a, a sense of waiting dangerously rather than doing the work to avert um, the potential for a crisis to escalate. And, and there's a sense in which we're one step from a major miscalculation that will get other actors piling in. And then you really are in trouble because then you really uh, are no longer able to control it. So the key today is how do you roll back the Houthis as well. How do you get them to um, pull back from from the, from from their own strikes? The US and UK say it was limited, it was symbolic, but you know, will they be able to um, curb um, the, the Houthis, who have tremendous capability? I don't think we should underestimate the extent of the capabilities that they have: ballistic missiles, um, cruise missiles, um, drones. So even though the West you know, as a combined actor, um, appear stronger. The Houthis themselves, you know, are broadening um, through their own actions, broadening the targets and broadening um, the scale um, of this crisis. So I think it's it's a really worrying trend that we're seeing. And it's not clear to me as I speak to you, um, um, Ravi, how we're going to roll um, this back. And for me, the lesson we need to take in relation to what is happening now on the Red Sea. The lesson we need to take from 2015, if you'll remember when the Saudi-led coalition um, tried to weaken the Houthis is that the, the end result was a strengthening of the Houthis, for example. So I think we're in a very dangerous moment um, where things will spiral out of control. And as I said, I believe that we are one step away um, from a dangerous miscalculation and, it, the, the, and the approach now has to be um, to de-escalate and to tamp down um, the rise in temperature that we're, we're, we're seeing. Um, and there were warnings that there was going to be regional reverberations, that there was going to be fallout, there's going to be ramifications if we don't get a pause, if we don't get a truce, and if we don't start doing the hard work of securing a more viable ceasefire going forward. You uh, are based in London and you run this big global group, but you have your ear to the ground, I think, more than most when it comes to how um, the Global South um, views conflicts uh, like these. And I'm curious, given um, all the people you speak to and all the places you go, how you judge America's role so far um, in the conflict in the Middle East? You know, it's a good question, um, Ravi. It's been, it's been, we, we wrote a, a, a statement um, just before the end of the year, where we acknowledged the important role that the US had played positively, for example, um, in the way it had supported um, Ukraine, unified 
of Europe um, to, to ensure there was a very clear message to Russia and its aggression on Ukraine. The US too has been an important sort of actor, you know, really trying to shape and nudge Netanyahu, you know, and I and I I believe that Biden's trip very early into the into the conflict was an important one, and it was very good of him um, also to remind um, um, Israel as the world was sympathizing with the horror that it faced on the seventh, to remind um, Israel not to go down the path that America had gone down as a result of 9-11. That in the heat and the emotions um, that you should avoid allowing those emotions to drive um, your response. And recognizing that shock and recognizing that horror, crisis group itself, it's been very clear you know, on Israel's, you know, right to self-defense because of what happened. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very shocking event. But nonetheless, it's very hard to close one's eyes to the devastation that is facing um, Gaza. And I think one of our concerns is that United States, the United States government so far has backed Israel virtually without conditions. Now, there have been some, um, with heard some concerns within Congress. We know of the divisions um, within the State Department. We know that there is concerns among some in the White House, but I think um, the, the employing of the sort of the bear-hugging strategy um, to marshal influence, to try and cajole um, and to try and sway um, Netanyahu, it's not working. The US is the most influential, uh, most important actor and it is unable to nudge Netanyahu and those around him to the right direction. And this speaks to what I was saying to you at the very beginning, which is the the framework on of our of our of our peace, um, Ravi. That we are in this moment where there are no constraining forces or actors able to pull leaders back. Um, that we are watching battlefield dynamics where there's there's no scope, no room um, for diplomacy, and no clear insight into what the end game looks like. And the U.S. itself has been both an important player, um, still internationally, but there's a sense in which on this one, it there's a sense in which it has gotten it wrong. Um, and, you know, it, but I still think, and we do say it in our piece, um, Ravi, that not all is lost, that Washington could and should press urgently um, for another truce. It was very instrumental in the very first truce that we secured. It was able, because of Washington, we were able to get hostage um, release. Um, we were able to get those under the captive hands of Hamas release. Um, it will be harder to secure that this time, but Washington can and ought to play um, that role and continue to play um, that uh, that role. It is the one actor more than any others with Qatar um, that can continue to play that role. And I think that I think there's recognition um, that despite the criticisms against him, there is recognition of Washington's own um, leverage in in this in this game in this in this unfortunate situation. So let me contrast some of what you're saying or compare it with another war, and that's Ukraine. 
And some of the conditions you were describing seem similar to me. You have a a leader who feels and seems unrestrained, Vladimir Putin. You have uh, no sign of diplomacy that could work between the two sides. And then you have no sign of an endgame. So all of the things you mentioned um, about the Middle East seem even more true about Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, and this is, again, a war that America um, is very involved in, in terms of backing uh, Ukraine at the very least, but also sanctioning Russia. What's your sense of, you know, as someone who focuses on ending crises uh, and seeking resolution, um, what's your sense of what could be done um, with with the war in Ukraine? You know, it's, so, it's, it's very hard because right now, more than 2020, three or 2022 um, right now the the russia ukraine war and we say um in the essay um ravis for the first time has become a political football um in washington and it's coming at the time where we're going into an, an election year um in washington and where biden himself and i think it speaks to israel um guards as well biden himself very careful inch by inch being very careful about the direction um he's he's taken the counter-offensive um, hasn't panned out in the way that Ukraine had hoped for. And we're now watching um, President Putin, who appears to have a, a spring in his step, so to speak, um, because the Kremlin calculates that um, it has time on its side um, because the counter-offensive hasn't worked. He's also been able to pivot the country, the entire country, but particularly the economy, on a war footing. He's been able to get um, to consolidate following the, the mutiny um, that we saw in Wagner. And he's watching a frustrated Zelensky um, today that is not able to sort of convince and cajole um, um, Western actors. As I speak, however, Ravi, this morning or overnight, um, the Prime Minister of the UK um, went um, to Kiev and you know, made promises for the commitments, which is important coming at a time where there are concerns about more aid either from the US or from or from, from Europe as well. So I think the 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 mood is is changing and there are and there are reasons um to be concerned. And there's a reason to be concerned because Ukraine does face um what appears to be sort of a very bleak winter all the conversations um ravi around um whether um we could get close to some kind of negotiations there's little indication from what we've seen um in the conversations that we've had whether you know my colleagues that work on ukraine my colleagues in in based in in washington or europe there's little indication um of a of a way out there's little indication um, that um, Putin would come to the table, um, that he will stop the fighting, that he will um, sort of give back the ter um, um, territory that, that he's grabbed. There's, there's little indication, um, even regardless of the public statements, even the back channels, there's still concerns as to the appetite um, to sue um, for some kind of, of compromise. And of course, any suggestion um, of a compromise, of any concession um, from the Ukraine side, is political suicide for Zelensky. So he cannot go to the Ukrainians um, saying, well, we're going to concede, we're going to um, give you know, Moscow these lands that, it, that it's won by conquest. They're, they're, he cannot do that. That is a very difficult 
task for him to do right now and the conditions um, to sit down um, to, to talk, the conditions just don't um, exist and the incentive for waiting um, till November to see what the outcome of your elections will be um, is what is also driving um, Putin um, um, today. So it's it's very hard to see what the way mm. out is like, even um, as you and I speak as well. All of this sounds so bleak. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to a question from one of our subscribers. Um, uh, her name is Erica Ilias, and she's in Brussels. Um, and her question is, what else? Um, I'm quoting her here. What else can I do concretely, other than the classic things like being tolerant and inclusive as a fellow human being, making a donation to an, an organization like yours, Comfort, or signing another petition, or marching on the street with a sign? or sending requested goods to those various war zones that we're discussing, I feel frustrated as a citizen to watch this horror and still feel helpless. Those are the words of Erica Elias. Um, Comfort, you must get asked a variant of this question um, by quite a few people, but what should regular citizens do when they see a world at war, when they see the inability of our international system to deal with it? What can people do? I mean, it's a, it's a good question, and I and I thank um, Erica, your 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 listener, for for the question. Um, you know, Ravi, when we put the ten conflicts um, to watch down, it's not um, a list of the deadlier deadliest conflicts in the world. It's not a list. It's not a predictive list. It's a list of things that we believe that you should watch because we see either opportunities. Yes, we sometimes see reversals. Yes, we see dangers ahead. Yes, we see. Uh, no more humanitarian um, um, crisis and and catastrophe, but it's also a list of countries that we believe there are opportunities to shift the policy dial, and in every of the ten um, conflicts that are listed, um, Ravi, are solutions. In every of the ten um, conflicts that we put there, there is a window of opportunity. There is a chance to take the crisis into a better direction. There is an opportunity to pursue a more concerted um, effort in trying to deal with um, a particular crisis. Let me give you two on the list. Myanmar, as we speak, one of the news that came out today was that there could possibly be a ceasefire discussion um, between um, the, the re rebellion and also the um, the, the, the Myanmar um, junta. You put it down as one of the eight Simran um, issues to watch in terms of the fallout um, into into the into the region. But you know that is already that's already an important indication, and China is going to be crucial to that. And as you were hinting, um, India will also be crucial to that. Another one that we mentioned on our list is Haiti, um, um, Ravi. Now Kenya, um, a rising power in itself, um, decided. Um, in the midst of concerns about the failings of peacekeeping, to step up and to say, look, we are going to, in, in the name of solidarity, find a way in which to help Haiti deal with this conundrum. So in I, my message to Erica is that in all the conflicts that we highlight here, we lay out options to get out of them. And one of the things that, you know, thank you for the support that you give to organizations like, like Crisis Group. One of the things that I think would be really useful, instrumental, and powerful is to take the message from 
the 10 conflicts and any other report that you use it and bring it to your own um, leaders, your own constituencies, the, the leaders that shape um, your foreign policy um, and do the advocacy, you know, that the, we, we write these things and we want people like you to be able to advocate because you believe in the message um, that we've put out in, in this. This is even more important, Ravi, in an era of, of disinformation. Um, it's even more powerful um, in a period where um, international politics, domestic politics is highly polarised and where people like myself, like you, my colleagues, um, find um, that they've been challenged on their work. You know, our effort to be neutral, our effort to talk to everybody. I thank you for saying that at the very beginning, that this is an organisation that talks to all sides. And one of the biggest sort of battles that we are facing is when people try to undercut our ability um, to provide you know, impartial, objective um, analysis and try to, to undercut that um, you know, and try to provide disinformation um, and to counter the important work um, that a number of like-minded organizations like, like mine are pursuing as well. And that was Comfort Eero, the president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. Next week, I'm in Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. I have a superb lineup of live guests there, CEOs and heads of state alike. You will hear from them soon. Remember, you can see who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com. You can also watch these conversations live if you're a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live in video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. 
and will need to harness the wisdom of everyone from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 